Thank you. Welcome to a, another iteration of uh, TED Talks. Uh, this one is in person, and I'm very pleased to be uh, introducing Dr. Irene Petrick. Uh, she is a professor of practice in the College of IST. She has over 25 years of experience in technology planning, management, product development, in academia, and also in industrial settings. I'm not sure what we are. Are we in an industrial setting or academia here? Um, yeah, we're kind of in, on, on the bridge. Uh, she specializes in technology forecasting, digital road mapping, product and process development, and systems management. She's consulted with companies such as IBM, Lockheed Martin, the U.S. Department of Energy, Boeing, and Marine Corps Research University. Uh, she's a, a, a wonderful, she's been part of some of our other meetings here. It's been a highly stimulating, uh, a great thinker, and I'm very pleased to be able to introduce her now. Irene. Thank you for uh, inviting me here to speak to you. Uh, I'm going to be talking really about innovation and creativity, but really I'm going to be talking loudly, apparently, about collaboration and what it means to develop an innovative culture. I'll introduce to you Fed, uh, Phil Ayu, who is my uh, senior PhD student. He is about to embark on a major uh, research project with Intel looking at creativity and innovation. And so this is something that's near and dear to our hearts and we've been talking a lot about over the last four or five years in particular. So before I really get started, okay. I'm really going to talk about four main things, three main things. I'm going to talk about how do you link creativity and innovation. What are the differences? What are the definitions? But most importantly, I'm going to talk about what's an innovative architecture. What does it mean to have an organization that can really <coughs> leverage the individual, motivate the individual, and make the individual's values part of the organizational culture? Of course, no talk in these times would be complete without really talking about turbulence and what it means to be living through turbulent times. Um, and lest you think that a single expert can do this, lest you think that a single expert can do this, I'm going to throw quotes out here. I'm going to be referring to books. This is a topic that confounds all of us. There isn't a single right answer. And so in my classes, the, the, the right answer is always, it depends. And so my goal today is to talk a little bit about what it depends on. So I'll take a little help from my friends broadly across multiple fields. And I'll start with one of my first, my favorite ones, which is why are we here? Collectively, we sitting here, except for the pizza that's being served, why else might you be here? Well, the first thing that happens is here is Edward Bear coming downstairs now, bump, 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 <laughs> on the back behind Christopher Robin. It is, as far as he knows, the only way of coming downstairs. But sometimes he feels there surely is another way. If only he could stop bumping for a moment and think of it. When we think about living through turbulent times, when we think about answering the mail, all of the time we are simply bumping down a set of predetermined stairs. So this is a chance to take a step back, enjoy some pizza, and hopefully I will plant a few seeds for discussion later on. 
So before we can do that, though, you really have to think about the formal, quote, innovation process. And this is the neat way we describe it. You'll notice that it's linear. If you read this, you go from your left to your right. What you want to be thinking about is there are four general stages in this innovation process. And the first stage really is where you take the organization goals, mission, vision, and you somehow stick that into people's heads. And then those people be creative. In stage two, we have the fuzzy front end of innovation where we go from idea to some kind of reduction to practice, at least in a concept form. That's the really hard stuff, those two big squares of one, uh, of one and two. The third part is where we start really looking at formal management methods, project management methods, where we sequentially invest more money and eventually go to stage four where we are actually producing a product or a service or a good of some kind. And then we launch it. Now, typically when you read management books, Typically, when you read articles, when people tell you stories about their innovation journey, they describe it as a linear journey. It is only linear in hindsight. And so if you expect to be sitting through an innovation journey and be able to see the road ahead clearly marked and be able to understand all the places you're going to go, you're probably going to be very frustrated and very discouraged. When you finish a project, you will, of course, as you present it to your boss or his or her boss, describe it as a neat linear process. But it's not lived that way. And that's really where we start seeing some challenges of metrics. Metrics drive decisions. It turns out that metrics drive our behavior, too. So what you measure is what people do. The other thing that's really a challenge here is to go from management which is applying those metrics in very set stages to leadership, which is creating a culture, which is developing a sense of purpose, and which is developing a sense of purpose that's beyond the typical mission statement. Because mission statements read like motherhood and apple pie, and they're not actionable. So I'm going to spend some time today really talking about what it means to be an individual, what it means to be the organization, and how those two are really a challenging symbiotic relationship. Let's start with one of the most famous innovative companies. Here's another myth that I will de debunk for you. Apple, you see there that gentleman with the, app, the apple cut into his hair. Apple is near cult as a brand with people who use it. It has been a near cult with people who use it since a very early stage when it developed that standalone Mac. It's gone through that Mac and it's gone through clear to the MP3 player and now the iPhone and it continues to set the world on fire and to set the bar for what is creativity, what is innovation, what delights our customer. But if you look at Business Week from 2006, they're really talking about the fact that Apple, the, the iPod, wasn't a single innovation. It required innovation across multiple fields including seven types of innovation around networking, business models, branding. Interestingly, most of those innovations were not created by Apple. Before I fall over that. Most of those were not created by Apple. In fact, most of those were borrowed from someplace else. It was the combination and the novel combination 
that makes apples so compelling time over time over time. And at the center of Apple's model doesn't sit the process. At the center of Apple's model sits the end user, which is really, really interesting and which is where you probably in your collective thinking need to get. And we're going to talk about who that end user is and how that end user is changing. But when you talk with Steve Jobs, who is one of the most creative, well-acknowledged leaders in innovation, and you ask him, how do you innovate? How do you systematize this? How do you create that neat, linear flow? Steve Jobs answers in two words. You don't. So here's one of the most highly respected companies for innovation, one of the most highly respected leaders of innovation, saying systematizing it is an important thing to understand, but it's not how it lives. So why does that matter? Well, here's another famous, very insightful person. We'll talk with Dr. Seuss. You come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're darked. It's not even a well-lit, straightforward path. Okay? So now we've got bends, and we have shadows. This is why innovation is so tough, because people have ideas, not organizations. But organizations reduce them to practice. The real challenge in developing an innovative culture is how do you link those two in a meaningful, actionable, we can go out of here with marching orders and passion kind of a way. And it turns out that it really requires that we understand that innovation is a contact sport. And we've known this for a long time. Concurrent engineering we developed in the early 80s. This isn't something new necessarily, but it's something that we tend to forget. Concurrent engineering, supplier collaboration, open innovation, business models, at their center they all have teamwork, collaboration, team activities. Once again that challenge becomes how do we go from individual to teams and back to individual and how do we do that in the context of an organization that is living in turbulent times? How do we empower people? And that sounds like a real buzzword, but in the innovation creativity culture, it's not a buzzword, it's a mandate, it's an imperative. So we'll go back to Dr. Seuss and talk about the role of the expert. At the heart of innovation, if people have ideas, if I've got you that far, at the heart then is how do I identify the expert, how do I empower and enable the expert, how do I grow experts, and then how do I make them work together? Well, you have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. It's that second part that really gives us pause. I can make any choice. How do I know which one is the right one? How do I know? How do I bet where I should go? Or even more importantly for some companies, is where I shouldn't go. There isn't one right answer. And that's why the idea of people working together, talking together, arguing together is so important because it's perception. Those experts really bring value in a meaningful, interesting way. So let's go back to that linear flow and let's think of it more as a cycle of activities than as a linear flow. The very first thing you have is the organization. 
but the important part is the individual within that organization. And if you'll notice, that light blue box goes beyond the organization. You sit as part of an organization, but you also sit as part of your community, part of your social groups, part of your sports or other kinds of groups. You, have a, you touch a lot of people outside of your organization. And it turns out that those things make you a sensor. The human as a sensor is the single greatest thing we can do to improve our innovation culture. Once again, that sounds really good. Let's think about what does that really mean. Well, we still have to do sense-making. If you as an individual are sitting in a cubicle or at a desk someplace and you're seeing the world broadly, how do you know what parts of that world touch your organization, what parts of that world touch your job, or more importantly, how do you know what changes in your world, in your environment, in your worldview, are going to become drivers for what your organization needs to do differently or do more of or stop doing? You have to do sense-making. At some point, you do have to have that go, no-go decision. Somebody has to stick a stake in the sand and say, yes, we're going to spend money. Yes, we're going to commit resources. All too often, those decisions get made based upon, this worked in the past, it'll probably work again. In turbulent times, that is the kiss of death. Finally, once I have something that works, how do I take that and look at opportunity spaces that may be adjacent to that? How do I leverage what I've done well to new kinds of models? This is the challenge of the organization, but it's really the challenge of individuals within the organization. When you take that to the organizational challenge, I've drawn the same things, but the organizational challenge is how do I help that individual become an enhanced sensor? How do I tell that individual, go broadly into your world and find me these kinds of ideas? This is why you need more than a mission statement or a vision. Because you have to know what really matters. You have to know what to bring back and talk about. So the organization has to help you understand what its goals might be, it has to help you understand what its challenges are, and it has to help you understand what pieces of your environment you need to bring back home and talk about with other humans as sensors. First, that's, that's one part of it. The other part is you have to have a more effective portfolio management process. I still have to make those decisions at some point in time. Do I really know what matters? Do I really know what I'm trying to achieve? And have I framed that with respect to the group's values, the organization's values, and have I framed it with respect to the individual values? If people are sensors, if experts are important, if teams have to work together, somehow part of that linkage has to be between the values that you hold as an individual and the values that you hold as a group. The last thing then that the organization really needs to do in creating an innovation culture is to have an earlier recognition of those good ideas. So we have to be experimenting. And I'll talk about the importance, the critical importance, of failing. An organization has to be willing to fail. So not only do you have to rec recognize things earlier, but you have to expand that opportunity space.
you have to rethink, if this is the world that I play in and it's this big, I have to think, how could I make it this big over time? How can I make it this big over time? So we do what's called adjacency modeling, and there are all kinds of things you can do with that. But the bottom line is, the organization's job is to take your ideas, reduce them, and reapply them, recombine them, to be Apple and Steve Jobs. That's what you really want to do. Finally, the organization has to help you link to other resources. Just as you are doing enhanced sensing in your world, the organization has to improve and increase the number of touch points you have and the number of touch points it has as partners. Apple didn't invent all of the stuff that went into the iPod, nor the iPhone. It is exceptionally good at not only bringing people into the fold because it's successful, but it's also exceptionally good at encouraging its partners to co-invest, to co-imagine, to co-design. That requires a level of sharing and intimacy that frequently we are not comfortable with. Now, as a nonprofit, that's a little bit different, but from a competitive world where I do a lot of my consulting work, getting companies to share is a major hurdle. Individuals will share and talk. Getting the company policies in place to do that is a real challenge. So now we've said the individual is at the heart of things, that the individual is enabled by his or her network and the way that the organization helps organize all of that. What is creative work? Well, first of all, creative work doesn't show. If you come past my office most of the time, my feet are up on my desk, and I'm pondering. Isn't that that Maria's laughing? Because that's true. I sit with my feet on my desk. So the, the issue is, I'm hard at work, but I really don't look it. Uh, and and that's, that's a challenge. Because being hard at work, I can't manage you by output. I can't count the things you do. So the nature of creative work is really combining the artistry of the left brain. I'm sorry, the thoroughness of the left brain and the artistry of the right. A colleague, senior researcher at Carnegie Mellon, has been asking this question. What percent of the knowledge you need to do your job is stored in your own mind? He's been asking that since the 80s. Okay. And as you might expect, in 1986, the typical answer was 75% of the knowledge that I need is right here. There are some of us who remember those days. In 97, a scant 10 years later, typical answer was 15 to 20%. 2010, what do you think it is? Oh, it's not quite so bad as two. They, they, this, the, same, the same researcher estimated that he thought by 2006, he stopped counting, by the way, by 2006 it would be down about 6 to 10. If we have to marry creativity and thoroughness, modeling and imagining, doing and dreaming, and it's not in a single person's brain, you begin to see the challenge of how do I really leverage that expert? How do I create that expert? How do I bring those experts together? And it turns out that knowledge is no longer power. Imagination. 
is where the power lies. So Albert Einstein says, imagination is more important than knowledge, for while knowledge defines all we currently know and understand, imagination points to all that we might yet discover and create. Knowledge is a prerequisite. Working with smart, talented, good people is a prerequisite. But it's not working. It's dreaming with. It's thinking with. It's kibitzing with. It's all that wonderful water cooler stuff we used to have when we had water coolers. Okay? Now we have cubicles. And now we have far-flung things. And now we would be much more likely to, to, to type an, uh, an email. You don't dream on email. You might communicate on email, but you really don't dream. And so part of the challenge is how do we take technologies that make us more efficient, and how do we stop applying them all the time to some things that aren't efficient, to some things that really are sort of slow and ugly and difficult? And how do we do it in a way that I can see your eyes, I can see your face, I can see your agreement or your disagreement? That becomes a critical thing that we've lost touch with. And if you think about companies like Google, or companies like Apple, or companies like Microsoft, that you would put up there as pretty creative, they're all about creating collective, collaborative kinds of spaces. They're about doing these kinds of things where you come together and talk about stuff that's not necessarily, this is my job. It's, this is my passion. This is my interest. So it's really all a matter of perspective. Individuals have ideas. Ideas come from knowledge and imagination. So let's think about what that really means. When asked why he drew a representation of a hat, the little prince replied, I represented a boa snake digesting an elephant. <laughs> I then drew a boa so that the big persons can understand. They always need an explanation. <laughs> this is at the heart of creativity. It's seeing things in a different way, but it's also in finding ways to communicate that in the context of other things, either in the context of other people's perceptions, or in the context of other people's management styles, or in the context of reports, or resources, or other kinds of things that you have to do. It's the translation of that creative spark to some other form. And that's what creative geniuses forget. If you don't communicate the idea, it gets lost. And so it's not just about having that water cooler conversation. It's about translating it into something that's actionable and explaining it broadly in ways that are well understood. And it turns out academics are terrible at that. I'll pick on myself. So why does that matter? Well, it really matters because every innovation was once a competitive, experimental, rich playing field. We didn't know the answers. Sometimes we didn't even know how to define the field. You know, the airplane continues to evolve, continues to have major, major changes. And when Boeing said, we're going to build airplanes out of plastic, you can bet Walt Gillette, who led that team, faced a real uphill battle. We're going to get rid of hydraulics and replace them with electronics. We're going to get rid of aluminum, and we're going to replace them with plastic. 
composites, laminates. And oh, by the way, we're not sure how some of this is going to come together. We're not sure how the wing body joint is going to happen. We're not sure how the fuselage are going to fit together. We've got to build an extra large plane to transport all of these pieces that other people in our supply chain are going to build for us. So when you start thinking about innovation, it's not a single point in time. It's not a single place in time. It certainly isn't a single individual. And here's where the importance of failure is a really, really critical thing. We see failures all around us. We hear lovely quotes about failures. And those all sound uplifting. I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 things that don't work. Well, if you're Thomas Edison, I guess that's OK. <laughs> Success is the ability to go from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm. Well, if you're Sir Winston Churchill, that's OK. But what do the rest of us do? How do the rest of us fail with dignity? How do the rest of us find Viagra from blood pressure medications? It's all a matter of empowering those experts to think differently and then giving them the chance to make some of those mistakes without deep penalty. So what does that really mean? Well, here's where some of this gets actionable. You don't want to fail. You want to practice intelligent, fast failure. We'll go back to Edison, who had those 10,000 things that didn't work. He also said, failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. In my work over the last 20 years, this is the single most important thing we've discovered, is that you really do get better things out of failure. You don't learn much from success, which is why turbulent times are so hard. Because what was successful before isn't necessarily going to be successful now. And because it was successful before, you didn't really learn what made you successful. So what you have to think about, really, is these kinds of things. You have to think about phases. I don't just do an entire project. I do pieces where I have prototypes and I experiment. I discover what works and what doesn't. And I intelligently create experiments that help me figure out what's not going to work. Because those are the resources you can't afford to lose in tough times. The other thing you have to do is you have to maintain a skeptical view. And you have to realize that part of this is luck. Part of it. The more you really think about how do I fail and how do I be more successful, the better, the luckier you get. There's that old saying, the more I practice, the luckier I am. That's really true. But there is something called active inertia and the map paradox. Active inertia comes when we basically have a successful organization. We have a team, a group, an individual. We all view the world. We create a mental model that we share. And this mental model is our view of the world and the way it works. Now think about it. We are all sitting here, whether you like to agree with it or not, we are all sitting here with blinders on, every single one of us. We reinforce those commonly held assumptions and mental models with processes, with resource allocations, with external relationships, and with the culture we've created. If you're in successful times and you're doing well, that's great. 
you have a map that's working. You know the direction you're going. If, however, you are in turbulent times, then doing more of what we've been good at, doing more the way we've been good at doing it, we tend to accelerate those. We say, if we only work harder, if we only do more of that, we'll be successful. And that's not really true. In fact, in turbulent markets, according to Donald Saul, and this is probably, I've got a stack of books here, this is probably one of the best books I have read in recent times. It's very new, it's called The Upside of Turbulence, Donald Saul. He says, in turbulent times, turbulent markets, leaders view the world, or view the future, not through a telescope, that lovely linear view with the map that we have, but through a kaleidoscope. That's probably the most powerful statement I've read. Because, and this gets back to my class, remember the answer always is it depends? Focusing that kaleidoscope is a matter of figuring out what things out there that you see really matter. And I'll invite you to come up and look at this chart I put up here uh, right below the monitor to my right. This is one of the best examples of what are all the things in the future that are going to impact us, what are the time frames in which they might happen, and most importantly, how do they cross and impact each other. Looks like a subway map, okay? It's not. It is not the Washington subway or the London Underground, okay? It is a group's view of the future. And the thing I really like about this is that how many of you have ever seen maps, road maps, or timelines that weren't linear? Okay, there's only one hand up. Okay, this is one of the most powerful things, even if they've got it wrong, because they force you to acknowledge that it's not linear, that it's sequential, that it, it, it's like a pebble in a brook. It does make rings, and those ripple effects may have different intersections with other things depending on what you're looking at. It is very important. If you do take nothing else from this talk, the world is only linear in hindsight. It's only linear in hindsight. So we live in a world of increasing complexity where belief and intent are at odds with execution. The challenge, both from an individual perspective and from an organizational perspective, is to create and build bridges across those two. And that's where high-impact innovative cultures come from. It's not that the organization changes and now we're all better. It's not that we change and now we're all better. It's that continuous recycling through. And none of that happens without some failure. So what would a high-impact culture look like? Certainly, I believe you need to empower individuals as sensors. I need to be able to go forth broadly, and I need to understand what I'm looking at. And I need to be able to know what things to bring back to the rest of my group and talk about. You have to value diversity of thought. That sounds really good. But the important part is that the diversity of thought is critical because you want to have experts that are constantly clashing in productive, meaningful ways. So you have to grow experts. You have to invest in people. 
I, when I go into boardrooms and talk to senior leadership, I say you should be, and people love this, by the way, you should be sending key people to the Las Vegas Consumer Electronics Show. Oh, they love that one. The technologists really like that one. You should be sending people to the National Retail Federation Show in New York City. I love that one. Okay. Why? Because those are the industries where the churn is the fastest. They're failing constantly. You learn a lot by seeing what's there from one year to the next, by seeing what people are really interested in. Now, everybody's going to go back to their email. You're going to get emails that say, I think I need to go. The shows you have, you have, you have 12 months to think about it. They were both just in January. Okay, so you're, you're good to go here. People hate it when I say this in October because then the requests flood in. But you have to grow experts. You have to create a collaborative environment where failure is the accepted precursor, but you which means you have to always do lessons learned and debriefs. You don't push that failure under the rug or back to the side. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you think about how many of you are comfortable failing, I bet not too many hands are going to go up. And certainly they're not going to go up if a boss is looking. It has to become something that we accept as the not the norm necessarily, but not an unanticipated thing. And then we have to have things in place to learn and capture those lessons. Understanding that the winds of change are constantly blowing. You have to be constantly scanning the environment. Techno the pace of technology is so fast right now that, that you have to really think about that. In fact, when Yale, Princeton, many colleges now are doing their strategic planning. They're actually going back and talking not to high school freshmen. They're talking to a much earlier age. They're talking to the digital natives who don't think of education as I talk at you. Now, I don't know what I'm going to do when those digital natives come to school, but it's on my horizon. It is clearly on my horizon. Because of that, you have to currently challenge your worldview. And that's why experts with diverse opinions who are, who are constantly sensing their environment, coming back and having those discussions, you got to have that water cooler discussion. Finally, you have to seek opportunities and threats. We tend to circle the wagons when things get tough. Somebody is going to make money. Somebody is going to create the next big thing. And they're the ones who don't have a huge infrastructure a lot of the time. They're the ones who don't have a worldview and a culture. They're often the entrepreneurs. Why? Because they're sequentially failing all the time. Because they don't have a worldview, they have a next view. So if you want to be more entrepreneurial, you really have to not think of things as oh boy, we better circle these wagons, I better keep my head down. You have to be saying, somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to improve. Somebody's going to do better. How can it be me? How can it be us? And those are generally a different kind of discussion because often you're planning your own demise. But you don't plan the demise without that vision of the phoenix rising back. The companies that successfully do this over time Practice that idea of skepticism. 
practice that idea as humans as sensors and have an organizational culture that while it doesn't like to fail, while it has a higher percentage of success actually, acknowledges that I learn more when I'm tripping and stumbling than when I am running really fast. So those are my thoughts on all of this. I'd love to answer questions or actually open the floor to conversation. The only request I've been asked to make is that if you have a question, you come up to the mic so that we can record. Or you can yell it out and I'll repeat it apparently. Okay. Hello. There's one. Okay. So here's my question. It seems like the go no go decision is the most difficult for organizations to um, wrap their heads around, and it seems like that's the place that we keep coming and discussing over and over again. Like, what are what do highly effective organizations, how do they determine what goes, what doesn't go? Actually, that's a really good question because the really effective companies that do this, and I'll speak more from a company, that's my background, it's much more companies, those companies make multiple no-go or go decisions. I don't simply say, of course we're going to do this big thing. I say, well, tell me what the next showstopper is now prove to me that's not going to be a showstopper. And you get through that little piece and you say, now what's the next showstopper? So what you're really trying to do is to say, how can I make sure I'm not doing something really dumb? You make that go, no-go decision several times. But you do it with more certainty each time. If you read Bob Cooper and his stage gate process, there's a really well-formed process for this. But you have to be thinking not, not from a managerial, I'm, I'm just spending more money. You'd be saying, I'm buying down risk. I, because I now know what's the next major uh, uh, showstopper, I know that's not going to be my showstopper. Excuse me. And that's why it's really important to have those kinds of discussions because one person's idea of a showstopper is going to be different depending on the perception you bring. So I don't think you make that decision only once. Okay, here's one over here. Better you than me. So in a culture that um, values deliberation and evidence-based decision-making and consensus, um, other than a really impassioned change or die type of speech, how do you encourage that culture to change? <laughs> now that wasn't a commentary on me, was it? Um, <laughs> so, so where's the rubber hit the road is what you're asking me. Okay. talk about a couple of organizations lately that have been really struggling. I'll talk about Boeing, for example. How does Boeing really create a culture where I can fail? Well, the first thing it does is it does not necessarily fire you when the wings almost fall off. Um, it does not necessarily demote you. It does not necessarily, but it doesn't necessarily reward you either. So. The, the organizations that get very good at this are the organizations that encourage people to bring up potential problems early. They're organizations that don't shoot the messenger. Okay? Uh, most of those organizations have what I would consider to be a closed door policy. Behind a closed door you can say anything. 
I think that's a really strong one if you're asking for very specific actionable things. Um, some of those organizations have a 360 reviews. That's probably a little bit much. I'm not a big fan of 360, but I am a big fan of peer input. I am a big fan of, of review that goes beyond just top down. Uh, some, some of the best organizations I've seen that do this have uh, ways of collecting ideas and posting them in unique ways that other people can talk about, but then they schedule formal and informal kinds of time to discuss them. The one thing, and I'll, I'll pick on Boeing again because I spent a whole summer out there one year, and we were talking about how do you be more innovative? How do you be do better supply chain kinds of things? And I got to the end, and I'm presenting to senior management, and I said, well, I do have one question for you. I said, when do y'all eat? And the senior VP looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, I have yet to see thinking time. And in fact, you schedule meetings for me from morning until night. I said, I have skipped more breakfasts, more lunches, and more dinners in this summer than I have skipped in a long, long time. And they sheepishly looked at me and said, well, it's really tight right now. It's really tough right now. It's really intense. Organizations need to give you some thinking time. That's probably, if I talk to senior people, if I talk to engineers, I talk to designers, I talk to anybody who's trying to do a creative thought, the single biggest thing they lack is creative time, time to think. Was that specific enough? Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. So we oftentimes in our processes do pause and we ask questions about our organization and our processes and such. Do you have suggestion of strategies that help us? Sometimes those experiences can be more like navel gazing. <laughs> and um, because we have the same people in the room, we have the same and so you, you sort of rehash and, and, and go through solutions and ideas that we've already What are some mechanisms or techniques that we can employ that help to stimulate new thinking, new ideas? There was a slide back about four or five that you put up that really kind of struck me as of how we often do, I'll blame myself, on how I do that. I, I don't think I'm introducing innovation from the outside. I'm, I'm, <clears throat> there, are several, there are several things I would suggest. Some of them require resources, some of them do not. Um, the, I'll start with the ones that require resources. If, you, if the first thing you cut is travel to conferences, shame on you. That's a really important one because that helps you bring the outside in. If you are having a very difficult set of discussions, bring in a facilitator. Much of my work right now in these very turbulent times is not as a consultant to say, what should you do next? It's as a facilitator to ask questions, to help stimulate discussion, and to keep the session to, so that we have more light and less heat. Um, have an agenda. It's not that you have to have a specific agenda. But the one thing, we, the mistake we often make is, I'm going to be creative, so I shouldn't put boundaries around anything. People need to know what they're coming for. Pre-plan some things. Think about seed beforehand. If you're just having a meeting and people look around and say, why are we here? You've probably not done the kind of pre-planning that's really important. 
the harder the discussions, the more important the pre-planning is. And the more important the pre-planning is, the better you are having somebody from outside of your organization to bounce ideas off of. And that doesn't have to be a paid consultant all the time. Go talk with your friend. Go talk with other people. It's, it's not a matter of an expert. It's a different perspective that you're looking for. So, so those are the things. The things that I see most frequently done poorly are you don't have an agenda because you're trying to be creative. You don't have an ending point because nobody knows when you're done. Um, yeah, those are the two that are really the, tougher, the toughest ones. And then the other ones are resource related. When you fail and you want to fail quickly, how, how do you go about quickly doing the autopsy? How do you go about quickly <laughs> learning? Well, once you pick yourself back up again, uh, the hardest part of the autopsy is self-anesthetizing. <laughs> because what you have to do is you have to separate personal failure from that idea didn't work. And most of us have a tough time doing that. Most of us have a tough time doing that. Um, so the first thing I think you have to do is you have to take a deep breath as the individual and be able to say, what was my role in that failure? And then you have to be able to look deeply into your own soul, as tacky as that sounds, or as flowery as that sounds, because that's where the lessons come. What could I have done differently? What could we have done differently? And almost always when you get to those autopsies, it's all about you had one set of assumptions, I had one set of assumptions, and we really didn't talk about them really well. And not only that, we never tested those assumptions. We both blithely walked along, assuming our view was the right one. That's where most of the autopsies start. Uh, after that, I think you have to schedule and talk about, in a very formal way, what lessons did we learn. So the mistakes we made is, is sort of an offline, more quiet discussion reflection. When we get to the lessons learned, that should be a very formal, how do we go forward and not make those same mistakes, make other ones. Uh, so, Irene, we, we, the, a lot of the things that you're saying sound like they make a lot of sense when you're going out and talking to uh, big corporations like Boeing. But let's take another kind of organization, like, say, maybe a large public research university. Um, there are challenges, as you know, because there are so many different worldviews between, between and among uh, academic disciplines, and also huge cultural divides between the academic culture and the professional or administrative culture at a university. So how does innovation happen in that environment? <sighs> I think we're about done. <laughs> All right, you know, I will, I will speak very, very bluntly, very honestly. Uh, at, and at, at, at some public universities, uh, major research universities, faculty are driven by more and more and more depth around a particular topic. And I'm rewarded around the students I produce and the papers that, that are in, uh, inspiring to other people and the research funding that I bring in. You didn't hear me say the companies I touch or the people I touch. The students I teach, oh, by the way, do matter to some faculty more than others, quite honestly, at a research university. So how does an organization such as yours, how do you even engage me? Because I'm your resource. 
I'm what you're selling. Or at least my brain power, my products, my thoughts, my insights are what you are helping apply. If I'm not incentivized to apply them, how do you bring me in? Well, I can tell you that most faculty, not all, care that their research gets used. They care that somebody said, hey, that was pretty interesting. And most faculty don't know how to do that kind of outreach to the community, to the community at, in a small way or to the community at large. So being a linking mechanism, making it easy for me to get in front of groups like this, making it easy for me to do community kinds of things, and then helping me recognize with enough planning time that you could get something back from this. It's really, you have to think not just what do my clients need, but you have to think what does my resource back here need and how can I create some of those linkages and make it easy, but how can I create win-win? Too often, and I've worked in economic development uh, at, in the, at the state level, uh, and I've, I've done this kind of work because it's, I'm interested in economic development. That's something that to me is important. But too often, professionals in economic development don't create win-wins. They create my wins. And, and that's, that's a real problem in a, in a university like this. Uh, it's also a real problem um, because, and, and once again, I'll speak very broadly, you know, someone pulled the rug out from under you. It used to be we talked about research, teaching, and service, and service really meant service to the state, service to the pro profession, service to the public at large. That seems to be changing. And particularly, and, and this is not the only place that's changing. Arizona State is losing whole departments because of state funding. There's a whole lot of things changing. It's not just here. But the way in which we play is changing. And, and we don't know those answers. And, and uh, I'd like to have more impact, but there are only 24 hours in my day, too. And, and so that's, that's where it really becomes challenging. So these, the, to, in my mind, these are some of the most turbulent times we've ever faced from a higher ed standpoint. And I don't think they're going to get easier. And that's, I think, why knowing what matters and what's really important I think that's why it becomes so essential. Irina, first of all, thank you so much for today, and also thank you for all the time you've given to uh, all the time you've given to outreach. We really appreciate it. I have two quick questions. One is, um, what are you seeing as far as trends nationally with companies or internationally with companies relative to having R&D departments as opposed to trying? to infuse innovation across the organization. And then maybe secondly, is hard question is, what do you think is the most highly leveraged thing we could do in outreach to create a high impact innovative culture? Oh man, you are gonna put me on the spot. <laughs> We're definitely done. Um, uh, I'll take the, the first question is, is what are companies doing with R&D? I'm really worried for some companies. The smart companies are continuing to keep resources in-house, at least enough to recognize what other experts are finding. Uh, one of the reasons Boeing had so much trouble with the 787, and I can talk about this now because it's been in the press, one of the reasons they had it is because they got rid of their whole composites and manufacturing expertise because they didn't need it because the Sonic Cruiser got axed. They forgot that you need some of those experts, even if you're not using them right this second. So some companies are keeping the experts 
even if they're not using them 100% right this moment because they believe that's an important piece of what they need to have. So they're not making resource decisions based upon the, my hair is on fire. Unfortunately, many of the companies are, make, are making a decision implicitly, which I particularly am very worried about for some companies, and that is they're not replacing people who are retiring. The percent of the workforce here, particularly in the U.S., above 55 is likely to retire in the next five to seven years is very, very high. The burn rate as things get tougher at companies is going up. The stock market may change that a bit. People may stay a little bit longer. But in general, we're letting people go by attrition. And as every one of those people walks out the door, their expertise, their mindset, their experience leads with them. Companies aren't doing enough for that. I, I, that really concerns me. And when I spent a summer in India, continue to work with uh, Indian uh, companies and Indian experts, someone's going to eat our lunch. And I don't think it's going to be us. Question those like this. Does Google have a traditional R&D department like Lockheed or, or, or Boeing or does, does Amazon? I mean, or is innovation or R&D really across the, uh, the organization? I'm not see oh, oh, I see. In other words, do they make it only one place? Uh, most companies have strategic business unit divisions, and some of them still have central corporate R&D kinds of groups. Um, th that actually is changing. It used to be we had these wonderful labs, and then you, we, did, we had this curtain that you couldn't look behind. Uh, about 10 years ago, we said, let's put all those people back out in the business units, because that's what really matters. I'm beginning to see more of that. We really need a central group, too, but we need to link the two. So I'm seeing a little bit different now. Uh, they're tending to come back from the business units to, to make sure they have some expertise as a group. So, so what's the single biggest thing outreach can do? Now, you asked this, so I'm going to give you. Stop calling it reset. I wouldn't have said that if you hadn't asked. You're not resetting. You're not reworking. You're not retooling. You are not responding. You should be leading, creating. You should be, uh, we used to call it right-sizing. But you should be writing your own future. By saying reset, you're basically saying, look left, look right. Who's going to not be here? You're saying, look left, look right in terms of projects. Which one's going away? It's not which ones are going away. It's which ones are staying. And, and, and I, I think that if you, if you look at it as a threat, then you are always protecting turf. If you look at it as an opportunity, then you're trying to leverage turf. That, to me, is the single biggest thing. On that note, <laughs> I better be fast.